Welcome to the Faith Driven Athlete Podcast. If you're an athlete, coach, or sports fan driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected is to sign up for our free monthly magazine at faithdrivenathlete.org. We'll compile the best videos, articles, and resources written by athletes across the country and bring them to you once a month. This podcast, of course, doesn't exist without you, our community. So while you're on the site, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you or any questions that you might have for our guests. What broke the camel's back was one time I was downtown picture this. You know, the water fountains that had like a refrigerated water fountain with a little pipe going to another little fountain and it said colored people's fountain right there. There was a little old lady that was walking on the sidewalk and she'd get right next to the colored water fountain and she had a can of Ajax and she was that particular water fountain. All right. Then some white Mm. kids came by there and she stood and turned her back. They went and spit in the doggone fountain there and thought it was funny. She never said nothing. They walked past, and she began to wipe it off. I said, oh, hell no. What I wanted to do was to go back there and, you know, kick some booty, you know? But that thing about the negative energy turning into positive action and knowing that if I would have done that, my life would have been in danger. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Athlete Podcast. Today's guest is a special and timely one. Neville Shedd was one of the players on the 1966 Texas Western men's basketball team who went on to win the national championship and ushered in a new era of desegregated college basketball. Their story is famous now. You can watch the movie Glory Road to see the season play out. But Neville gave us a behind-the-scenes look into what life was really like in the 1960s for an African-American college student living in New York and going to school in El Paso, Texas. We originally planned to release this episode later this summer, but in light of the recent events in America, Neville's words are so relevant. We hope this episode serves as a chance for all of us to look back and to look forward to a different, more open and accepting time, a better future. Let's listen in. Welcome back to The Faith Driven Athlete. With The Faith Driven Athlete, we very much enjoy bringing you stories of some of the greatest sports stars in our midst that are driven by their faith in a way that might encourage and equip you as you're an athlete or as you're a business owner or as you are a teacher or a pastor or wherever God has you. One of the things that's important for us is for us to also be able to have the program provide some perspective of what God is doing in the world and has been doing in the world. Of course, the concept of an athlete like a Tim Tebow or Kirk Cousins being driven by their faith and being able to talk about that publicly is something that's important. We want to cover on the show, and we have and we will, but we also want to be able to provide our listeners with a broader context and an experience that allows for us all to understand the larger fabric of athletics and God working in the marketplace. And there's no real better place for us to really dive into that than today's program that we have with Neville Shedd. Neville, we're so honored that you, who we really consider to be a living legend, are on this show. Many of our listeners have watched Glory Road, just a great, fantastic movie, and seen the power of the story. It's super powerful, and we want to dive into that and hear more about your faith journey. But first off, Before we talk about UTEP and we talk about the story that became Glory Road and the things that happened after, 
Tell us about growing up. Tell us about your personal story and the beginning of your faith journey. Well, you know, growing up in the South Bronx in New York City, and I was fortunate enough to live in part of the Bronx, New York, where there were people of colors. And in New York, you know, living in an environment where you were able to go to the movies, ride the bus. In other words, shall I say that you were able to, to a certain extent, exercise the land of the free. So, you know, the only way of networking on what was going on in the South and other parts, the only thing we heard was, you know, two magazines, which was the Jet Magazine and Ebony, that really put forth a strong image as to how it was back then. But once again, saying I came from a Christian family, my mother, she was in a choir called the William Gospel Singers, and I had my grandmother that lived with us, who was the powerhouse behind the Christian regime. Uh, mm. That was Sally Jones, a.k.a. Big Mama. Big Mama. And if I can just tell you a little bit about her, you know, she was a lady, very, you know, strong lady that I remember just seeing her in these black long dresses with this embroidered collar. And she had a cane. And to watch her walk across the floor, it seemed like she was floating. And to this day, even though she's not with us anymore, I swear to God that that cane that she had was a piece of Moses' staff. Because whenever <laughs> she pointed at us, she banged that on the floor asking for me, Neville, or she called me Butch, which is my nickname. You know, once that cane hit the floor, you know, it was like E.F. Hutton. You know, everybody was listening. <laughs> yeah. And she always had a Bible in her hand. And she was the one that continued to, you know, read the passage. She was always reading. And I remember times she used to sit me at the foot of the chair and she'd just read to me and read to me. And of course, as a youngster, I'd fall asleep and she'd pop me with that little cane, you know, but it was there all the time. And as a youngster, I was quite sheltered. My mother kept me in the house a lot, you know, and my view was always from the fourth floor window looking out the other kids playing. But uh, it was all right because they kept me quite occupied. On Sundays, it was Sunday school, then uh, church, then coming home to eat that good after-church meal, and then evening church. And that's when my mother and her choir would sing. And there were times when I would travel with them and I'd have to, you know, carry music and listen to them sing. And she had a beautiful, beautiful voice. My father, he was the worker behind us, a very strong Christian man. But, you know, I, I never really saw him pray or anything, but, you know, he'd always say, everything's going to be all right, just keep praying. And I'd hear mm -hmm. my grandmother in the back, she's, uh, she's moaning and praying, you know. So it was kind of, you know, comfort to hear. And seeing the things outside, you know, even though, from the comfort of my home, you know, the drugs was out there, the gangs was out there. And yes, there was racism. And my grandmother used to always say, baby, when you grow up, you're going to be special. She literally said, you're going to be special. And I said, big mama, how can you say that when I'm seeing all that stuff out there? And I say this today. She said, baby, take all that negative energy and work through prayer of training into positive action. Negative energy, energy into positive action. And I was a dreamer. And I think to this day, at 77 years young, I am truly a dreamer. And I say to them, you know, mom, dad, big mama, when I grow up, 
I want to be successful so I can take care of you for all the things. I saw the problems and the sometimes struggles that my mother and father went through. Praise God, you know, the food was always there. And I saw the bills being paid, but I knew there were times when I'd hear them talk about this has to be paid, that has to be paid. And my grandmother being in the back and said, don't worry, baby, it's going to be all right. So when I came to them to talk about that, and I said, you know, when I grow up, I am going to be successful. I want to be successful. And I dream about this big mama. And she said, baby, keep on dreaming for that without dreams or passion for something, one cannot receive his or her provision. And believe you me, one become a basketball player and being from the fourth floor uh, window, but always listen to the basketball games. And I actually vision myself playing this year. As time went on, going to school, I'm doing this long division because it is part of my journey. Yeah. Faith. You know, um, going to school, I was a little fat kid, you know, lack of exercises, I assume. And there were kids at the elementary school that used to bully me. And, you know, I think I acquired my speed and agility because once school was out at 315, when I got to that fence, I was gone. And I was running home. And when I got close to home, my mother said, don't you ever let me see you uh, running away from somebody. But I was fast enough to be ahead of the guys who were chasing me. And, you know, I was quite punctual and getting home because I had to run past a shoe shop, a stationery store, and a cleaners. And they'd say, yep, it's 3.15, right on time. There go that shed boy coming. He blowing past those houses right on time every day and I, you know yeah. as years went back when they were still there they said son we used to always see you running past our shop so you end up from south bronx you're down in west texas it's a time of civil rights you're in a place that's completely different i can't imagine let a place me, much okay. more different let me stop let say. me stop you right there now you know i was through the grace of god i became a pretty good basketball player Acquired a lot of scholarships. I was an all-city ball player in New York City, which if you become an all-city in New York, that's pretty good. A lot of my scholarships were to schools that I had no chance of going to Alabama, you know, the ACC schools, you know, that I knew I couldn't attend. But I did get a scholarship to a school in the South, North Carolina Mm A&T, which is one of our historical black colleges. Mm -hmm. I was pretty happy about that because it was giving me a chance to continue, you know, playing basketball in the South. And let me tell you, I knew about how it was in the South. My father was a Pullman porter who worked for the Pennsylvania Railroad, which now I think is Amtrak. And I was able to get a free ride to Greensboro. Now, here was my first part of culture shock. It was a couple other guys and myself that were heading to Greensboro. We were able to sit any place on the train, and we, you know, we sat, you know, in this regular coach. When we got to Baltimore, I think it was Baltimore, the conductor came and said, "All of uh, colored folks and Negroes have to go to the smoking area." And I said, "I ain't going to no smoking area." You know, my daddy put me right here, yeah. and he politely said to me. Uh, Young boy, if you don't go to the back, 
we'll put you off the train. So these other guys that come on shed, man, we went and sat in the back. And I didn't like that because I wasn't accustomed, but that was the first episode. Once I got to Greensboro, oh, yes, they met me at the train station. And all of a sudden, I looked around, and I saw a white water fountain and a colored water fountain. I saw a white restroom and a colored restroom. And found out as time that the restaurants that were there, the chefs, they were Afro-American. The waiters were Afro-American. But for me to get a meal, I had to go around to the back. And I said, hey, man, why do we go in the back, man? They would say, hey, shit, this is where we got to do, man. We can't sit in the front. And this is, you know, that first part of something very, very strange to me. I went to the movies. I took my doll and put it in the front there, and the lady kept pointing to the back. And I said, what do you mean to the back? And this young boy came by and said, say, man, we got to go around the back. So I said, okay. I picked my doll back up and went around into this alley. And there was a putrid green and blue sign that said, colored people's interests. Mm. <laughs> so I walked in, and I had to walk up these stairs. In the balcony, there were benches. All right? To watch the same movie. And everything would be set in the benches to get a, you know, popcorn or something. You had to knock on this little door and they slid this little door back. And I said, nah, I don't think I want to have that popcorn or sodas there. And I couldn't believe that. But, you know, my mother taught me something about choices. She said, baby, you know, before you get up here and start open your mouth about choices, you know, you got to listen and watch. Just keep the mouth shut. So, I had one thing that she taught me. We used to ride the subway a lot. And she'd see people going through different little antics. She said, baby, I said, mama, watch. She said, be quiet and watch. Be quiet and watch. Then ask the questions. So going through that episode in uh, North Carolina A&T, and I saw where to, I couldn't look a person in the face. My mother and father told me, whoever you talk to, you have to listen to, you stand tall. I was tall and skinny. So you stand tall, you know, looking right in the eye, you know. But I found out later on that you couldn't do that. And I saw how Afro-Americans would walk past white people, how they would stop, turn their back. They'd walk past them. Then they start walking. It was like, hey, being cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. You know, there was nothing to it. And I said, man, I can't live like this here. But then again, I remember how... A lot of Afro-Americans lost their lives and other things that were hurting them because of them trying to stand up for their rights. And me, you know, being in a situation that was totally strange to me and knowing that I don't think I could have dealt with that. So I called my mother up and said, Mama, I got to come home. And she said, why? And I began to tell these situations. And she said, try, baby. You got a scholarship. So I stayed a lot on campus. You know, I did well as a freshman. You know, I started and I, I did pretty well for that. What broke the camel's back was one time I was downtown. Picture this. You know, the water fountains, that had like a refrigerated water fountain with a little pipe going to another little fountain. And it said colored people's fountain right there. There was a little old lady that was walking on the sidewalk. And she'd get right next to the colored water fountain, and she had a can of Ajax. And she was that particular water fountain. All right? Then some white Mm. kids came by there, and she stood and turned her back. 
They went and spit in the doggone fountain there and thought it was funny. She never said nothing. They walked past, and she began to wipe it off. I said, oh, hell no. What I wanted to do was to go back there and, you know, kick some booty, you know? But that thing about the negative energy turning into positive action and knowing that if I would have done that, my life would have been in danger. So I left the school. And I went back to New York City, and my mom said, baby, at home, you either work or you go to school. So I started working at a little fast food place, but I kept working at my trade. And now here's the most magnificent thing that happened. There was one of my friends that lived in the Bronx, New York, played for Coach Haskins at Texas Western, told him about these basketball players. In New York City. At the time, it was Willie Cager and I. And he told about this guy who coached us on the outside, Hilton White. And did I ever go to the school? Nope. How I got that scholarship was that a banker from El Paso had business in New York City, found out where we lived, and visited us and said, I'm from Texas Western College. You know, I'm a banker, but I'm representing Coach Haskins, the coach there. And we're willing to give Neville four years, room, board, tuition, all fees paid. And I said, well, where is it at? He said, El Paso, Texas. I said, Texas? I said, the only thing I knew about Texas was all wells and cows. Do you hear me? So I accepted the scholarship. (laughs) But let me tell you something. When we got there, I was very cautious as to where I was going. But uh, going to El Paso, Texas, when we flew over these mountains and I saw nothing but desert, I thought I was going straight to hell. And I told Cage, that's a Cage, are we sure that we're in the right place here? Yeah. And the planes <laughs> used to land on the field then, you know? And when they opened that door, it had to be over 100 and some odd degrees and the dust was blowing. Yeah. And I said, KJ, I don't think I want to do this here. But we walked down, and out of the dust came this little pudgy white guy and his assistant, Mo Iver. It reminded me of one of those Clint Eastwood movies. You go, do 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 You know, they just, started, they just started walking through there, and a new part of my journey began. But I was very cautious now, you know, as to where I was. But the way I was treated, once again, I bought into saying that this is a place where I can continue on my trade and my dream of becoming a successful basketball player. But getting a taste of that black-white, it was hard, you know. Reading about it first, and you remember now, it might have been a different thing today because of our network, you know, everything that happens all around the world, such as what we're going through right now, is network. But... All we had was, like I said, the Jet Magazine and the Ebony Magazine, which only gave you so much. But stepping into the real world of that and getting small tastes of it, yes, I was quite cautious. But when I arrived in El Paso, you know, and how people treated me, except certain times, you know, certain times, you know, people, you know, living in their own lives for so long. It was somewhat uncomfortable, but I was smart enough to stay away from that. 
So Neville, take us in a little bit. I appreciate the context that you've given us. You've helped us understand the situation. It's crazy to think in today's day and age that you and Cager make a decision, go across country, you know, on the word of somebody and some ideas, no pictures. You're not seeing the thing. These days, people are visiting a couple of times before they commit. But talk to us now a little bit about the dynamics in the locker room. You get there on campus. What's that transition like for you? What's the tension that's there as you've got a team that is diverse and coming from unique backgrounds? Now, let me tell you something about that. Now, you know the movie Glory Road, all right? Of course. The movie, you know, when they started writing the, the script for Glory Road, they took us one at a time and asked, a question, question similar to as to what you're saying now. How was it? What was the relationship between the white athletes and the black athletes? To be honest with you, we never had any problems. We never had any problems. And, you know, they went through this situation and asked the white athletes, what do you think about, you know, not being able to play most of the game with those seven Afro-Americans? You know, we're playing predominantly most of the game. They never had anything bad to say. And when they put us together, they couldn't believe it. You know, I think the writers were trying to find some type of, you know, storyline sure. between us. Yeah. Never had it. My best friend, my best friend was a guy by the name of Louis Bedon. He was from New Mexico, and we called him Flip. And him and I, you know, we just hung out together. We never, I repeat, and I'm going to speak for myself. I never, on the basketball team, now I'm talking about the basketball players, never had any controversies about that. <laughs> math was not my great subject. As a matter of fact, I was a product of mathematical anxiety. I went to one of the white guys and said, hey, man, this algebra is kicking my behind here. So I said, hey, man, I need help with the math. And he helped me. You understand? It was one brother to another. And to this day, we still have that type of relationship. So, you know, when it came to that, when it came to hanging out, when it came to playing for Don Haskins, number one, he would not have allowed that. All right? Number two, not one time can I remember when I had one of them to call me a derogatory name. You know, someone asked me a long time ago, if you had to describe that team in one word, what would it be? I said cohesiveness. You know, and I kind of smiled and said, you know, we were exercising diversity and inclusion back then when it wasn't even in the dictionary. We were very comfortable and we stood together. Yes, in certain places, East Texas, we knew not to go into, you know, Buck Jones's restaurant and places, you know, because Coach Hassan did a good job of protecting us. It was there. And I guess I can say for myself, I wanted so bad to fulfill the dream of being successful and once again buying into this man's system, which I thought he was out of his mind. You know, you had to be a certain kind of basketball player to play for him, that I wasn't going to mess that up. So take us into that. What about the system? I mean, we hear motion offense. We hear some of those things. I want you to kind of move into that special season, the one that we hear about in the movie, the one that we hear about there. What was it in the X's and the O's, the chemistry it sounds like there, but what was special about playing for Coach Haskins and the style of basketball that was played at the time? Okay. First of all, I hated the man. 
I think we all hated him. All right. And you had to be a special kind of ball player to play for Don Haskins. Now, look at the city ball players later on. That team there when it was Neville Shedd, Willie Cager, Willie Worsley from New York City, running gun. You know, Bobby Joe Hill from Detroit, running gun. Big Daddy Latin from Houston, you know, all black team, running gun. You know, we were all like that. Austin Artists and Harry Florida from Indiana. So you knew how they played. So we came down there ready to play some running gun ball player. We got out on the floor and it didn't like the early scrimmage before season start. And by then I was a rebounder. You know, I can grab that rebound and pitch it out and run like a thoroughbred down the floor. And we'd run down and see the guard bouncing the ball real slow. And I would say, hey, man, what you doing? And has to come out. Hey, he said, Chad, you're not one of them big apple city slickers. Uh, we control the ball down here. And I did not say, what do you mean? So I had to ask some of the guys who were there. He said, hey, man, we run a passing game. Our passing game consists of maybe three or four things. Pass cut to the basket, pass, and screen away, pass, and screen the person that you pass the ball to. That was it. When you dribble a basketball, you're not allowed to make bounce passes because he believed if you can get a ball to him in a straight pass, a bounce pass wasn't necessary. Don't you dare try to dribble behind your back. And I looked at this man, <laughs> you know, for the first year, we were winning. Because of his defense, you know, his defense was tenacious. Our offense was just a standard, I guess you could say, passing game. And we had to pass that ball maybe 15 times unless it's a layup shot before we take a shot. So was there a point in the season, was there a point in the tournament where he just realized it's time to put the throttle down and let it go? No, sir. Now you're talking the movie part. You understand? Let me tell you, let's talk about that particular year, 65, 66. We ran all the time. When we got the ball off the board and pitched that thing out to Bobby Joe Hill, we were gone. But we had to set ourselves up because we had two great guards in Bobby Joe and Austin Artis. So he knew how to use his talent. People asked us prior to the game, well, you know, what do you think you're going to do? What are the changes that you're going to make playing against Kentucky, you know, had won the national championship four years prior to that against the great Adolph Rupp. <laughs> All we said is that, hey, man, we're going to play the same way that we've been playing to get to that point. Now, if you plan talking to you as a coach now, you knew that Mr. Rupp had that 1-3-1 one, one offense and defense, you know, trapping in the corners. I looked at that and I laughed because they couldn't trap Bobby Joe. Bobby Joe was so much ahead of himself. And, you know, Willie Worsley was so quick, you know. And Coach Haskins, I repeat, Coach Haskins told David Latin, he said, the minute you touch the ball, I don't care if you travel, I want you to slam dunk that ball. And looking at the film, a lot of times we were very patient, and they win their 1-3-1 defense, and somehow that ball was passed beautifully to David Latin. And unfortunately, Mr. Riley, Pat Riley, was underneath the basket, and there was thunder, and he threw that thing down. But as far as a unique offense, 
we didn't have it. Defense was strictly man-to-man. I think one time in my four years there, we played a zone, and that was an insult to us. I remember one time we were uh, scouting the game, or somebody else was scouting the game, and they're saying that he never had a closed practice away. But this man, this coach came by and said, Don, do you want us to run everybody out? He said, oh, hell no. They're going to try to hold a zone against us, and we're just going to slow the ball down and take the air out of it. And that's what he would do. You know, he hated zone. But there wasn't too many teams that could trap us. And, you know, that game there, the starting five regular season was Bobby Joe Hill, Austin Artis, Harry Flournoy, David Latin, and I. That game, he sat me down and put Willie Worsley in because they had those three super guards. So, you know, he wanted to match them on that. People asked me, Chad, did you get upset over that? I said, no, because I knew that I was going to get in the game somewhere through the heat of those two halves. Uh, How many points did I score for that game? I scored three points. And I think they said I had about three or four rebounds. But my greatest part of the game was that I shot the free throws that put us ahead, and we never looked back. Mm. And it didn't bother Do you hear me? It didn't bother me because that's what it wasn't all about. If I would have sulked or got mad because I didn't start, I don't think I would have been playing at all. We knew what our responsibilities were. It was defense. If you looked at the percentage, I mean, they shot the ball 33%, if I recall. You know, we took away all that stuff. Pat Riley did score. I think he scored about 19 points. You know, he was the real deal. But when you look at a five-man game and how we controlled the game, people said that we were not disciplined. But that was a myth because how we controlled the basketball, you know, and worked under the pressure, even though they said that we were so dumb that we couldn't even write our names, we were misfits and all that type of stuff. One newspaper said, now we're going to be going up against a a great team. You know, they're going to really see how basketball is played. That was a joke. Haskins, if you were able to talk to him now, they asked him, what was their demeanor, you know, before the game? And he said, I got so mad at them, you know, that I walked into the room, and they they were laying out playing dominoes, playing with. Bobby Joe had a toothpick laid back on the bed, you know. We weren't even worried about that game. That makes me think, as you talk about just the atmosphere before the game, it makes me wonder, did you all understand at any degree about the importance of the game? I mean, it's one of the watershed moments in all of sports. You change the landscape of college basketball and race relations in college sports forever. At the time, did you all realize that you were living in a historical moment? Was that any part of the conversation? Did you have any awareness about that? Now, let me see if I can put this real simple to you. We were a bunch of kids, number one, just playing basketball. And I'm uh-huh. talking about 12 athletes, all right? Just playing the basketball game, playing one game at a time, all right? Mm-hmm. Did not really think about getting to the Final Four, even when we were ranked pretty high in the ratings, you know? We were playing one game at a time. Yes, we heard people saying, wait till you play this team and wait till you play that team. But I can't remember when we really panicked over games. And if you look back on the schedule, we had a bunch of games that we were behind. You understand? And I remember one game we were playing, and we were like 22 points down. And we knew that Coach Haskins was going to go on there and just blow our heads off. 
He said something like, uh, you got 20 minutes to get him. Don't try to do it too fast. And he walked out the room. It was like saying, you know, I'm going to whoop your butt when you get home, you know, and it never happened. And Bobby Joe took over. Bobby Joe said, you know, he just went out, shared, if you can't rebound better than that, Latin, you better do this or that. You know, if not, just get a ball to me and Willie. You know, that's the type of leader Bobby Joe was. But it was one game at a time. And we had some real vicious overtime games, you know. And Bobby Joe, I like what he said. Hey, babe, it's just another game. Just another game. But I, honestly, if I had to stand in front of my ball players now, all the ball players of color, I can't really say that we panicked. But when you got to the final four now, holy smoke, we played these semifinal games, you know, and when we had to play at Kansas, which was a heck of a game, we had the famous JoJo White with the conversation of him stepping out of bounds and everything. We knew that they had to walk Wesley and JoJo White and all those things. Hey, we just played them. They had to play against us. You think we had to worry about them? They had to worry about us. And let me tell you something about that semifinal game. The first game of the Final Four, Neville Shedd decided to be Cassius Clay. We were playing against Cincinnati to go to the semifinals. There was a guy on the Cincinnati team that just sort of, he was elbowing me and ribbing me and, you know, grabbing onto my stuff. And I was kind of jug button back with him. And Haskins said, Shad, you cut that out. And I said, but coach, he, he, he said, you play the game. I said, all right. Okay, I'm going to play this game. So we were going into our offense. We're down offense. And I was about to go out the screen for David Latin. And this guy had a handful of my shorts. So I turned around and gave him a roundhouse. And, of course, they called the technical. And Haskins, you know, they threw me out the game. Haskins went berserk. You're through. You wild man. Oh, he had he had beautiful names for me. I'll tell you about that later on. So they threw me out the game. <laughs> Willie Cage came in and just, you know, did his thing. He matter of fact, he shot the ball that won us the game. So he said, Shed, you're through. So uh, when the game was over, you know, everybody went to the locker room. We just got out of clothes and left. He left me in the arena. He left me there. And I called my mom and I said, Mom. Coach left me in the ring. She said, Neville Shane, are you out of your mind? I said, what? My, what are you doing hitting somebody? Oh, I said, Lord, I didn't have no type of support. The sports information director came in on his way out. He said, Neville, what are you doing here? I mean, he used to call me Shadow. He said, Shadow, what are you doing here? I said, Coach left me. He said, he, he took me back. The next day when we had to play Kansas, I was scared to death. At breakfast, I stayed so far away from Coach Haskins, you know, just avoid any kind of things that he would do. Pre-game meal, I saw my plate there, so I said, things look good. And then it was time for the game. So I got in the station wagon with the trainers and stuff. I wouldn't get in the regular station wagon with Coach Haskins. I got to the gym, and I saw my uniform out there, so I said, things looking good. But when it came time for him to put the team out there, who was going to start. Now, they had a little thing that was going to be Neville Shedd, you know, versus Walt Wesley, you know, the big guys, what have you. <laughs> I guess that was changed. So it was time to go out on the floor. And I'm always the last guy to run out on the court and walk past Coach Haskins. And I said, oh, gosh. He was waiting there. He said, Shed. I said, I can't believe it. That is going to throw me off the team right now. And I walked over to him. I said, yes, sir. 
He said, the next time you think you're Cassius Clay, when you hit him, make sure he doesn't get up off the floor. And he laughed at me and <laughs> went on in the game. He sat me down. It was over. The first half of the game, I didn't start. I didn't start, you know, and we kind of struggled with them and what have you. The second half, I still didn't go in. And I believe to this day that if Latin wouldn't have gotten foul trouble, he would have set me down the whole game. But when he called my name to go into the game, I jumped up off the bench, and I had my sweatpants and jacket off before I touched the ground. I went in and scored 12 points and 12 rebounds. You know, that's the type of adventures we had. Were we worried about the game when it went to a double overtime? Bobby Jones kept on saying, hey, babe, another overtime is just another game. Not thinking about where that was going to take us. I wanted to play against Duke because they had a slogan, we're number one because we try harder. And everybody, of course, said that, you know, whoever wins that game is going to win the championship. And Kentucky beat Duke and we, uh, you know, defeated Utah. But it was just one game at a time. I think it's fascinating for our listeners to think about the context of it. There's always a enjoy hearing the story of it. I think oftentimes we forget that in these big larger than life moments, that it's still 18, 19, 20 year old kids out there. And they're thinking one step ahead of another and one step at a time. And you get through one game after a game. You know, I think we've talked a lot about kind of what happened on the court, what coach meant, the process and some of those things there. It sounds like that watershed moment wasn't realized at the time. But take us past the game. Take us now, the years following it. At what point did you guys realize the significance of, man, that was a watershed moment? The game has changed. Let me tell you something. When the game was over, now you got to remember, taking the stuff back now, today, the road to the Final Four, you know, all the flashes and the Duncans and all that stuff. The way, I mean, you know, you know, the activities, how they saw a little history of how it is to come to that particular year of playing back. The network, was, it was the biggest hype out there. That wasn't out there then. How do you know, what do you know about Kentucky? Heck, we didn't know anything about Kentucky. Do you think Adolph Rupp was a racist? Only thing I know about Mr. Rupp was that he had won the championship four years prior to that, and he was called the Baron of Basketball. And I really didn't care. Now, when the game was over now, most of the time when you win a game, you know, they have a ladder, you know, something for you to cut the net down. They didn't have that. Willie Worsley sat on my head, lifted him. He sat on my head so we could lift him up high enough so that he can cut the net off. But it was just winning. Hey, man, we were national champions. That big thing. We're number one. We're number one. I never even looked back. And I'm telling you the truth. Harry Fournoy and I were walking off the court, you know. I didn't even look back at Kentucky. The most memorable thing of that game was that, do you remember graduations? You could always find your parents in the audience. That was the first time that my father ever saw me play basketball. Hmm. And I looked up in the stands and I saw my dad. And he was waving at me and I pointed to him. They have a picture of me pointing up in the stands right now. And I was saying to him, you know, I was saying, thank you, Father. Thank you, Dad, for all the suffering and things that you did for me as growing up. Thank you, God, for giving me the opportunity 
to have him come to that game to watch the best game of our lives. That's the thing that's outstanding to me. But when the game was over with, like you said, oh, yes, you know, flying into El Paso, that was just, you know, fantastic. Thousands and thousands of people were there. But, you know, it really, really didn't hit me until years later. There were certain books and things out there that Coach Haskin had just garbage cans and bushels of hate mail. They were talking about how anybody can put a team together consisting of misfits and street jockeys. You know, and I felt bad about that. Coming back to New York with, you know, my little shirt, you know, we're number one. I felt like wide earth and a doggone shooting match. Everybody wanted to challenge us, you know. Okay, yeah, yeah, you play about hockey over there, you know. And, you know, I had to play games. It was people calling me names, but it didn't bother me because I knew how to play against them, you know. You can't put nothing out there that I felt, you know, I couldn't handle. But, you know, I had to channel on, hey, you can call me anything that you want to call me. But I knew that that year, March 19th, 1966, my teammates and I were national championships. Later on, coaches started realizing that, you know, Afro-Americans, we're going to take a chance with them. I think we opened the doors allowing minorities, if qualified, to attend any university of their choice. You know, because they wouldn't give us a chance. I think I was able to play against some of those top schools. I played against them in All-American games, and some of the guys would come down to the Rucker, which you know was the place to play in New York City. Oh, sure. You know, and I played against them. Some of us are all-stars in the Ruckers with the Dr. J's and the Earl Monroe's and all those type of guys, you know, we played against them, played with them. So I felt I could have gone to one of those schools, but we know it didn't allow that. But after that game, you can see how the league changed, that all the Southwest schools and what have you began to give Afro-American athletes a chance. And they were qualified. They were qualified back then. Yes, they can go to the Midwest schools, but, you know, look what you see now. It's not even thought of as a problem. I feel so good about it that I have two sons that went to college and they did well, you know, not at the brackets that, you know, dad was, but, you know, they were able to make the choices to, to, to travel, you know, to see if I enjoyed the school. I was scouting one time uh, in San Francisco and I was in the airport and I had my ring at a layover and I had my ring on this football player, one of the pro football teams said, Hey man, uh, Texas Western, he said, Bobby Joe, Big Daddy Latin, The Shadow. And I said, The Shadow, that's me. That's me. Mm. And he said, hey, man, I want to thank you. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, I want to thank you, man, for what you guys did. Because my dad was a great football player. And he never had the chance to show what he can do. But what you guys did, you know, you opened the door to give me an opportunity and my kids an opportunity to go to any school of their choice, but they got to be qualified. That's a, that's a blessing right there. And, you know, for me to look back and say that, you know, my kids don't have that work. Other people's kids don't have, you know, that problem. We have the opportunities to open door, but yet some of the rules are still stagnant. You know, we still going through a lot of hard times, but you know, it was glory 
But yet, even through the glory, there was pain. But as time has gone, you know, what I'm so uh, proud of that, you know, no one has forgotten about that game. We sang, a, I consider, a very powerful song, and the melody is still being caught, you know, through our society today, not just by basketball players, but all athletes, and they teach it in school. You know, I teach at a high school, and the kids see me every day, and they say, Coach Shed, they say, yeah, you played for the Celtics, and yeah, you won a national championship, and they forget about that. One time we showed the movie Glory Road, and the part was, well, I'm looking for Neville Shed, Willie Worsley. I had about 100 and some of our kids' little heads turned around. and said, that's Coach Shed. And we see him every day. And then they start asking questions about how was it back then? You know, what is it true that you went through this and went through that? You know, and you sit down and talk to him. I say, hey, look at you guys. You don't have to go through these things today. But there's a lot more than just playing the game. You know, you got to put a big dose you know, of faith in it. You got to pray. You know, prayer produces power. You think I just got these things through me just playing the street balls, you know? There was a whole lot more to it. I always classify myself sometimes. I say, you know, God, family, basketball. And they all kind of coincide with each other, you know, because the family of God, you know, the basketball is a family thing. You got, you know, you got to have the faith factors and everything. And when you walk strong in faith, you don't have time to think about, well, if the team is all white or well, if the referees are all right, you know, you're going for the goals. I have put myself in a position that I bought into that I can do all things through my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who strengthens me. I say that all the time. And I know that without prayer and really believing the prayer and people say, well, how do you pray? I say, well, how do I pray? I just be talk, you know, I talk to God. I have a special relationship with him, you know, and he has put me in an arena. I wish I can tell you some of the miracles that I have gone through, you know, through just believing that what people say sometimes is going to happen. I don't worry about what they say, but I consider myself, you know, I'm not a reference. You know, I'm a living person that can go back 54 years plus and tell them some of the trials and tribulations that I went through, my family went through, and you believe it or not, they understand, man, I'm still going through some of those things now. But without the power of prayer and the faith and being consistent in what you believe in, you know, it's not going to happen. It's just going to be slower for you to happen. We're going through hell right now, but I truly believe that that also shall pass. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Neville, it has been a joy to be with you. I'm We're sorry. grateful for the words. No, we love hearing you preach. We love the encouragement. We love the way that you've reminded us of a time that was and hopefully a time that never again will ever be and that we can look back on some of the ways that society was and just how you and the team and everybody that was there was just an instrumental piece of the puzzle in God's hand of, of really setting a new course, a new direction for our country. And we're grateful the way that you've reminded us that God's word is alive and active and that he speaks to us on that journey and he speaks to us in the ways big and small. So thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. As we finish up, we like to spotlight a ministry that is locking arms with our listeners. 
We know that many listening to the show are business owners and entrepreneurs looking to live out your faith in the marketplace. So this week, we want to make sure everyone knows about the Faith Driven Entrepreneur. It's a weekly podcast, a monthly newsletter, a daily blog, along with other video Bible studies and events that help you get provisioned for the journey you are on. Check it out at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. Thank you very much for joining us for today's show. The best way to stay connected with us is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenathlete.org. We're very grateful for the opportunity to serve the larger faith-driven community. Come check out our podcast at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org and also faithdriveninvestor.org. We, of course, want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you. And it's been very rewarding to see listeners coming to the sites from more than 100 countries. It's very important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your journey, one that you're proud of and that you'll share with others. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends, executive producer Justin Foreman and program director Johnny Wells. Music by Carl Kegwell. You can see more of his work at summerdregs.com. Audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. 